Okay. Yeah, at some point, there is some teaching content, right? We'll talk about where that falls in the process of discipleship and all of that. But at some point, there are some things that should be taught to a disciple. Good. We have to know what we believe. We have to know. We have to know what we believe theologically okay. in order to pass it on to others. We have to know what we believe in order to be able to pass it on. Good. Any other observations? Yes. There is a command there. Go. Why? Why do you think that is? Yeah, that, there's a need. They're not coming to you. <laughs> right. Yes. And, and that's um, more true today than it has been in the past even, right? That they're not coming to us. So there's a sense in which that command to go is really important. Any other observations from those verses? It's pretty awesome that the one who has authority over everything is with us personally throughout the whole process of our ministry. Yeah. Diminishes the fear, doesn't it? It's good. Well, um, what we could have done for this session, as I was thinking about it, would be to say, okay, the theology of a disciple, what is it essential for us to know and believe? And we could have said, all right, let's just take a systematic theology, you know, like 10 or 12 main points of doctrine, and say, here's what you got to know, and here's what's not so important about each one of them. And we would end up taking four or five minutes on each doctrine, and it's really stuff that you could get somewhere else. So uh, we're not going to do that. Instead, like I said, we're going to have more of a discussion today, and um, hopefully that'll be helpful, not so much in having you walk out with answers, but at least with engaging you to wrestle more with the questions and push us in the right direction for those answers. Um, just by way of introduction, my name is Jason. Uh, I'm married to Janine. We have five kids, four boys and then a girl. Our oldest is 13, the youngest is two. Um, we've had three birthdays in the last two weeks, I think, so um, lots of celebrating going on in our house. And um, we planted a church in Wadsworth, a little west of Akron, several years ago, and the mission statement that we settled on for the church is discovering together what it means to follow Jesus. So discipleship is really kind of a core part of that. And the beginning word in that mission statement, discovering, was intentional um, to kind of remember to keep us humble. And remember that we don't have it all figured out. It's an ongoing process where we're discovering, we're learning, we're growing. It's almost like we're Baptists. There's all these open seats in the front. So um, hopefully today's discussion will be kind of pushing us along that road of discovering a little bit more of what it means to follow Jesus. So um, based on the discussion that we just had, and, and the idea of what we're not doing, that we're not going to do kind of a systematic theology point by point, here's what you need to know about this doctrine and not about that one. Let me recommend a few resources that will help you with that if you want that. Okay? So I have some resources here that I'm just going to mention briefly. And a few of the ones that I'm going to mention throughout the session, I had a bunch of extra copies, so I put just a little at-cost price thing there if you want those. They're available later. 
One of the best ones that I can recommend, and I'm not being paid to say this, is the Evangelical Convictions book. This is a fantastic resource for helping you walk through the statement of faith and understand what's essential and what's not. Wonderful resource. I turn back to this one all the time. Another book that would be a helpful thing along those lines. You know, there's no author listed. I have my my suspicions that it's mainly Greg Strand, but um, there's a committee. It's a book by committee, and usually that would be a a turnoff, but this one's really good. Um, Wayne Grudem's book, Christian Beliefs, which is kind of like taking his massive systematic theology and distilling it down to 20 basics every Christian should know. And if you want to take a look at these afterwards, I'm just going to leave them here, you can take a look at them. Rose Publishing puts out some nice materials that are very generic, evangelical, what Christians believe at a glance. And so it's just kind of a different way of walking through here some basics of what Christians believe. So if you want to think through in a systematic way, what are the essentials that we need to know and believe, those are a few good resources. All right, with that said, let me get you to the first main discussion question. Disciple. Let's just start by defining this. What do you see as you look at that word? Follower. Okay, so that's a really good synonym. One who is taught. Okay, one who is taught. Good. Discipline includes that word. Okay, so there's a related word, discipline. Now, um, you said discipline includes this. Is anyone else like me in that when you think of the word discipline, and maybe it's just because I'm a parent with young kids, but when you think of the word discipline and you think of the word disciple, I tend to think of different things that overlap a little bit, but I've got them kind of separate in my mind. Does anyone else think that way? Okay, so what's the connection between the two? You said one includes the other. You want to elaborate on it? You cannot be a faithful disciple without being a disciple. Okay. And what do you mean by discipline? A self-discipline. Okay. Um, Applying the disciplines of the Christian life. The the discipline, not in a corrective manner, though there's obviously a place for that in our lives, but discipline from the standpoint of God's training program for us. Yeah. So there's self-discipline. You mentioned different from corrective, which is what parental discipline often tends to be, is corrective. It's, I always say that with my boys, and you're straying from the path. This discipline is designed to bring you back onto the right path. Right? It's a standard. Okay. There's lots of open seats if you want to jump in up here anywhere. There's and, a, I mean, and, and the standard has to be well-defined and well-understood. Okay, the standard that you're being disciplined to has to be well-defined and well-understood. So what is it? Well, that would be the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. And His life modeled okay. what we should see and do. I mean, he, he came and lived His life so that we could see how He lived His life, and then we have the epistles then to give okay. insight into what He was doing. Yeah. Good. And, th- and that idea of being disciplined to the one you're following, we'll get to a little bit more, but that's, that's great. Yeah, so that connection with discipline, 
is very important when we think through what it means to be a disciple. I'm going to put up something else to continue answering this question, what does it mean to be a disciple? And I use this sometimes as I lead discussions on a variety of different topics. So this is kind of a fun way to do it. It may seem a little strange to you. This is a topic wheel. And I just put a few other areas of life around the edges, and I put disciple in the middle. And I want you to look at those and tell me what disciple has to do with any of those areas. Just pick one. We don't have to do all of them. But we have literature, history, government, science, philosophy, ethics. Does the word disciple connect in your mind to any of those? And if so, in what way? A Christian disciple or just how the, how the word just, itself is used? Just the word itself. Yeah. People that live ethically discipline themselves okay. to follow a certain set of standards. Okay, good. And it might be different standards for different people, but there's some thing, some way in which they're disciplining themselves toward a standard. Good. So that's ethics. different take, but each one of those areas is in itself a discipline where mm-hmm. the disciple could apply himself to. Yep. Good. What else? A disciple of science would probably be someone committed to method. Okay. Um, you know, you're, you're establishing procedures and finding outcomes and Okay, so someone who is um, following that discipline, like scientific method, they're going to be strict about those things. If you went inside of science, would there be disciples of different scientists, maybe? Absolutely. Okay. Um, t- yeah, taking, taking the mantle that someone else discovered, uh, building on it, trying to understand their, their methods better, their conclusions okay. better. And, yeah. Good. I think wherever the disciples, the disciple of is going to take their, take a certain set of presuppositions into each of those okay. areas. You know, they're going to have a certain framework that they're already establishing, and then they're going to use that framework to apply their understanding of philosophy, ethics, literature, history, and whatever else, like okay. a worldview type of a thing. Yeah. Very good. What else comes to mind as you look at those? A disciple of literature would have favorite authors and want to get into the mind of that author yeah. and understand sure. what's behind their words. And a lot of good writers are disciples of other good writers, right? Maybe not formally. I mean, it could be someone who's dead and gone, but they're a disciple in the sense, like you said, they're they're going to try to immerse themselves in that author's writings or something like that. Yeah. Good. It seems like a couple of those can move and shift like ethics. What is ethical today would not have stood a hundred years ago even mm-hmm. in the last generation. So a couple of those and even and I'm not sure about philosophy, but I'm thinking primarily of ethics shift and move. Mm-hmm what's right for you is wrong for me and I mean we're in the middle of that war right now sure and so it goes back to the word of God and being a disciple of a fixed notion here's the stake in the ground here's the plumb line Mm -hmm. 
does not move anyway. The word of God is the word of God, and he changes not. Yeah. Yeah. The fixed standard is very important. Good. How about government? You, you've been watching the news? <laughs> uh, you, your, your candidates are disciples of someone, at least in a lot of cases, right? So you hear, you hear names thrown around of who they want to be like or who they follow after or I want to be another whatever, right? I'm following in the footsteps of Reagan. I'm, that's discipleship in some sense. Right? Any other things come to mind as you look at that? The thing you see on social media, especially in this season, you know, the, the elections coming up and disciples of different candidates and their ideologies and, and things like that and trying, you know, people are a lot more aware, it seems like, in, in this time of you know, year or in this, you know, every four years where where they stand on issues that they probably don't think about a whole lot more and linking themselves not with necessarily ideologies but with the person who is leading the charge for those ideologies. Mm -hmm. why, why do you think people would link themselves with a person and not with the ideology itself? Uh, that, that person's ability to, to communicate the ideologies and Right. And yeah. take action, or at least claim to take action. Yeah. So, we um, mentioned Reagan. Anybody who was alive and paying attention and can remember Reagan's speeches would have a certain association in their mind, right? A certain feeling, even, that is evoked when you say Reagan as opposed to saying a particular position that he might have taken. We'll get to that by the end, but that's maybe the difference between between story and um, belief, or I, not that the two are opposed, but a different approach. I, you're hitting on all what I'm thinking. All of these in the circles relate to ideas. I mean, they're they're very much um, um, idea oriented, but also then you're talking about persons who embody the ideas as well. Yep. So let me, let me build on that. And you guys have already gotten here ahead of me, but I'm going to go ahead and, and read this. This is Luke 6, verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. That points out the importance of who you are being discipled to. Does it not? What's your end goal? Who do you want to be like? Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, and it's also important then for us to realize that that's not the only <coughs> voice we have in our lives. We have a lot of other voices, and those voices that we listen to are going to be pulling us to be like different people. And so it's important for us to, to be able to think through, even as you go through all those different areas, what are the voices I'm hearing? And, what are they pulling me to be like? And do they line up with Jesus or not? Another way to look at this, too, is, um, you know, Abraham Piper, I believe, was said that there's not a square inch 
of territory in the world over which Jesus does not say, mine. Which means, all of those areas belong to him. Right? So if I'm actually going to be a disciple of Jesus, I need to be Jesus-like in my ethics. In my approach to literature and understanding of it. In history, in government, in all of those things. Right? Because there's none of those areas that are not related to Jesus. So if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, it's not just when I open my Bible and the doctrines that I'm looking at. It's actually going to be the ways that I think and believe about all of life. So maybe just take that as a challenge to broaden our concept of what it means to be a disciple. 1 John 3, 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. How is it that we're transformed to be like Jesus? Seeing him as he is. Which means, like you heard already in the first session this morning, you've got to have your eyes on him. All right, let me, let me um, re recommend one resource as you think through this. And that is a book called The Walk by Stephen Smallman, Steps for New and Renewed Followers of Jesus. And this is just kind of a basic walkthrough of what it means to be a disciple, very basic level. Um, just a disclaimer is he's Presbyterian, so a few of the points kind of walk themselves out in a little bit different way than maybe would be normal for most of us. But this one I have um, several copies. I think I got those for four bucks, so if you want, that's available too. All right, next discussion question. I put a statement up here. I want you to tell me if you agree or not, or somewhere in between, and why. The gospel is the essential element of discipleship. Take a minute to take that in. The gospel is the essential element of discipleship. Do you agree with that or no? I think over the years, we tend to separate the gospel from discipleship. Okay. And what we've been talking about lately in our crew is, is, is embedding the gospel within the process of discipleship. And, uh, I don't know if that's... Okay. That's a great point. I'm, I'm wanting to just give you a chance to Put your thoughts out there and let them bump up against each other. Well, I would say it's a foundation stone for the discipleship. Without that, okay. all you have is empty good works. There could be any so-called religion. Okay. Only Christianity as the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as the foundation to build upon. Without that, it's just good works. Okay. Good. Yeah, these are great thoughts. I think that you know, at, at, at risk of sounding radical, you know, because gospel Sure, go for it. <laughs> Gospel-centered is kind of like the, you know, the important phrase now that we hear in a lot of evangelical churches. But I think the gospel is the essential philosophy or the essential uh, message or goal of discipleship. But the essential element has to be Jesus Christ because he's, okay. you know, what the, the goal is. 
So how are you defining the word element in your mind? That's where I've been struggling. I probably should have waited a little longer and processed it, but element... Well, I should have probably taken longer in phrasing the question. You know, I, I think element, I think of in ingredient. Okay. Um, you know, or, you know, element is object, you know, I'm thinking, and, um, and I think the gospel is the essential, I don't want to say ingredient, I mean, it's hard to, to you know, um, analogize it, but it's really, I think, the gospel is the the world, the, the, the philosophy that that we employ in this leadership that we speak and proclaim. But the image of Jesus Christ, I think, is okay. the element that we need the most. You wouldn't have the gospel if you didn't have the element. Okay. Good. I think there's a thought that the gospel the gospel is a cute thing that's defined that is that is holy Christian. And that the teachings of Jesus are more moral, um, but really the teachings Jesus was not a moral teacher. That all of his teachings that in the Great Commission he's commanding people to obey are actually just the gospel lived out. If you think of the the parable of Jesus of, of a man who was for, forgiven a debt um, of a million dollars, and then someone owes him ten dollars and he chokes him out, it's essentially the commandment is you've experienced the grace of God. Go live. That's a great point. Yeah. yeah, I think I echo Kim. I think that that's a true statement only if we're keeping um, the gospel work of Christ connected to the to the gospel implications okay. of the Christian life. So the gospel is the entrance into discipleship, but the gospel is also the uh, the empowerment for discipleship. So keeping the indicatives and the imperatives okay. always together. Good. Mm -hmm. sure. uh, I personally believe that if we view a disciple as a learner, then discipleship is a process of, of, of teaching others, of which I would say the gospel is an essential element of discipleship. Mm -hmm. I don't believe the gospel begins discipleship traditionally. I mean, a lot of people hold that, but if we believe being a disciple is learning and being the disciple maker is a process of teaching, then a person, most likely, you're not going to share the gospel with someone that they've never heard anything about Jesus Christ, know nothing about the Christian relationship, never seen the four spiritual laws or steps of peace with God and they're going to believe. Discipleship, whether we call it or not, has to take place, I believe, prior to actual understanding and receptivity of the gospel. Right. A learning has to take place before all of us experience that. We wouldn't call prior gospel as discipleship typically, but ultimately it's what it is. If we view discipleship as a learning process or a teaching process, then a certain level has to be taught or has to be learned in order to build a foundation upon which once they hear the gospel, it makes sense, the Holy Spirit convicts, they, that faith kind of thing takes place. John 2, 11, disciples put their faith in him. Right. Yeah. So that's my perspective on it. I would not say the gospel is the essential element, um, but it's certainly an essential element. And at some point, the teaching process in discipleship would include elements of the gospel that okay. the Holy Spirit eventually sure. kind of, I don't know. That's my perspective on sure. where gospel and discipleship 
I believe salvation takes place somewhere along the line of disciple of uh, discipleship. We can't okay. necessarily exactly pinpoint that necessarily just because they prayed a prayer or walked a mile. Sure. Well, that's where Jesus did it too. You know, he called the disciples to follow them. And they weren't even saved. You know, at that point. And come and see, follow me as they spent time with the master, as they learned from him, as they saw what he did and what he was about. At some point in time, they, they became believers. You know, some theologians would even say perhaps it was as long as Pentecost. I'm, I'm not sure at what point, but at some point, they, they, they believed the gospel and, and, and it was saved. You know, it wasn't, you know, hey, buddy, you know, we want to have eternal life here. Nice and loud until the fan kicks off. Sure. <laughs> Just a thought. Um, the gospel is the good news of salvation. So how much learning does it take to understand your sinful need for a Savior? I'll say a lot. I'll say a lot. Most people don't believe it's like an apathetic and liberal that Brother Kevin shared with today. Most people don't view themselves as believers as uh, sinners today. They're ambivalent. They're not necessarily antagonistic. And that people, they have to understand the bad news. And we have to understand that we're a sinner, that we need a savior, where sin took place. I mean, uh, it's different for everybody. I'm sure it's not like a recipe I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting, but I think without adequate teaching, ad adequate knowledge, I hate to use a Jehovah's Witness, but without accurate knowledge or some level of knowledge to know really who Jesus is and what he did and why we need him, the gospel is irrelevant. And will be ineffective. Yeah, and I think the definitions of the terms is is part of the sticking point as we have that conversation, and um, we don't have time to flesh that all out now. I'm going to say, take the things that you're hearing and continue to wrestle with it, because we could ask the question: Well, if someone, maybe we could say there's a call to discipleship that happens before conversion. Maybe that's one way to approach it. Is someone really a disciple if they never answer the bell? If they never are converted? Were they ever really a disciple? So did discipleship begin before conversion? Does discipleship begin for before conversion only for those who are ultimately believers? You know, there's there's lots of different ways to kind of ask that question and it comes down to those definitions. But that's good. That gets us wrestling and thinking through it. I, I want to kind of go back a step and um, see some things that are written in the New Testament that I think are helpful for us to identify about this. Turn to Romans, if you would, uh, right at the beginning of the letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 1. first couple of verses here, um, listen to how Paul begins. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, 
which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm going to stop there and say jump down with me to verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What is it that Paul says he's eager to come do for this church, this group of believers? He's eager to come preach the gospel to them. In our traditional understanding of gospel as evangelism, and then we move on to the other stuff, the discipleship, that doesn't make any sense. But Paul says he wants to come preach the gospel to this church. And if you look at his letter, it makes sense why he wants to do that, because he goes on for 11 chapters to explain the gospel, really. So flip over to chapter 11. I want you to see this little transition point that Paul makes. He goes on for these 11 chapters talking about what it is that God has done in Christ and kind of detailing it, and he gets into some systematic theology mixed in with some biblical theology. And you get down to the end of chapter 11, and he comes to this doxology. It's praising God for what he's done. Verse 33 of chapter 11, O oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now for these 11 chapters, he really has not been giving the Romans instructions. But now look at the beginning of chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Why does Paul want to preach the gospel to the church in Rome? Because, like we pointed out, the gospel is foundational for what he's calling them to. The gospel is foundational as a motivation, as what's going to spur them on now to live the way they should live, to live like Christ. And you could go through lots of Paul's letters and see this pattern. You go to Ephesians and see chapters 1 through 3 is all about what God has done for you in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. Over and over and over again. And then you get to chapter 4 and verse 1, and it's because of all that, walk worthy. Walk worthy of your calling. You've been called in the gospel, and now because of all this stuff that God has done, walk in a manner that's worthy of it. So, the gospel is the essential element of discipleship. 
Well, maybe. Depends on how we define our terms and all of that. But the core thing we need to understand is that as Christians, we don't move on from the gospel. The gospel continues to be a motivation for us. And at least in that sense, it is absolutely essential for discipleship. So when we ask that question that we asked at the beginning, what is it essential for a disciple to know and believe, the core of the answer to that is going to be the gospel. And in some sense, the Christian life, discipleship, is working out all of the implications of the gospel in your life. Any thoughts or comments on that before we go on? I'm sure there's one or two of you that are sitting there wrestling. I, I'm agreeing with what you're saying, by the way. Uh, so you're you're saying the gospel, and, and I, I, I'm when I see the gospel, I guess I was thinking, believe the Lord Jesus Christ, I shall be saved. The evangelistic portion sure. you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. So you're you're defining that as a broader, the good news, uh, a little bit broader than what we might, or what I might typically, if I was out evangelizing, I would say I shared the gospel with someone and yeah. they believed and were saved or something like that. So you're, uh, what you've read, then we're, we're taking the gospel as biblically, like it's beyond just the four spiritual laws or what we would give as a recipe for someone to come to save faith. Is that correct? Or yeah, I mean, the, Scripture talks about it both ways, doesn't it? I mean, there's the, there's the boiled-down nutshell version, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, I delivered to you what I, you know, what I received. What's of first importance that Christ died, he was buried, rose again according to the scriptures, right? I mean, that's the gospel. But then Paul can also go on and expand that out and say, let me, let me, let me take this gospel truth and show you just how deep this goes. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you can talk about it both ways. Gospel is invitation and its announcement. And it's also shorthand for everything that Jesus did in accomplishing redemption. Yeah. And that's why I say, you know, defining terms. My, my point is not to get you to write that sentence down or to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to it. My point is to get us to just wrestle with those ideas. So you can take um, any doctrine, really, and talk about it in terms of this kind of framework. Like, you know, think of the resurrection. <clears throat> Is the resurrection essential for us? You know, if the resurrection didn't happen, if Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but he never was raised, does that make a difference? Yeah, right. And so where Paul goes on and talks about that, you know, he lays that whole thing out. He goes on for 57 verses about that. What does he do in verse 58? Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's what we want in a disciple, isn't it? Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You want a disciple to be someone who is working in the Lord. You want it's a life change. It's 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 working itself out in the way they live. But where does that come from? <coughs> Everything he said before it. That's why the that's what the therefore is there for, right? Yeah. Good. I mean, we could talk about that in any number of ways, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to 
move on and ask this last, actually before I do that, I just gave it away. Okay, here's a few more resources. Um, when you think about the gospel and its implications, here's a few. Um, hidden in the gospel, this is one I've not yet read, but my wife did and thought it was fantastic, and that's a good recommendation. So, um, <laughs> truths you forget to tell yourself every day, and I, this is one I've got a few copies over here for three bucks, just that I picked up cheap. Um, a Gospel Primer for Christians, Milton mm -hmm. Vincent. I've seen some nods. <laughs> a, a valuable book for just, again, going back to what the gospel says and what difference that makes in my life as a disciple. And then um, Bridges and Bevington, The Bookends of the Christian Life, is just another short, simple little book that is um, really helpful on connecting the truth of what God has done with how I need to live, making those connections for you. Okay, so the next question then, and this is really our last question, which is better for discipleship, systematic theology or biblical theology? <laughs> Let's start by defining what those are. Somebody tell me uh, a definition for those. Systemat systematic theology would be theology in categories. Okay, good. And biblical theology would be the unpacking of Theology and stories. Okay. Categories okay. and stories. Yeah, that's a very simple definition. Uh, nails it. That, that helps you to understand the difference. So um, a lot of theology books that you might pick up would be systematic, and they're helpful because you can look up a topic or an idea or a category and see here's what Scripture teaches on this category. A biblical theology is going to take more maybe themes and trace them through Scripture. So which one's better for discipleship? Yes. <laughs> Why? Well, in systematic theology, you get what does the whole Bible teach about this topic? And so you get the whole story kind of in a glance. In, in biblical theology, you get the unpacking of the story uh, as the story was actually given to us. So you, 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 get, um, you get both the forest and the trees. So we need both of those. Good. Probably depends on who you're discipling. Okay. Depends on who you're discipling. And you. It kind of depends on, on your own personality and okay. how you... I don't know, just, just how you are able to say or, and or deliver... To whomever you're dealing with, it's very personal. Okay. I've met Christians that uh, pride themselves on their systematic theology but live their lives like hell. I mean, okay. so the knowledge is great, but I think understanding how that knowledge applies to the gospel. Okay. I, I agree. I think that.
That's okay. the foundation of the system. Nobody can know that well when you judge the systematic stuff very well. Okay. I'd say it's easy to get lost in the weeds in systematic theology, but in biblical theology, wherever you are, Jesus is there. And so you're never going to lose Christ in biblical theology, although I love systematic theology. <laughs> okay. I think um, people that work with those who are short in systematic theology tend to really wrestle with ignorance and carnality, and those who are short in biblical theology wrestle with pointlessness. They don't know where, they don't know where it's going. They don't, where, they don't know where God's going. Okay. Good. I think one of the things that systematic theology can do is it helps us to be precise. Um, sometimes maybe helps to prevent heresy, because you can nail down, here's exactly what this means and what it does not mean. And yet at the same time, story can do that because certain words in the Bible, words that God has given us, are embedded in a story. Because we know that words can change meaning over time, right? I mean, if you went back 75 years and used the word gay, it means something very different than what it does today. right? The word has changed meaning. But if you have a word that's embedded in a story, and the story is defining the word, it's much harder to change the meaning of it. So in that sense, both of them really can be helpful in keeping us on the right path. Um, systematic often is good for helping us see the distinctions. Biblical theology helps us to understand the big picture and how the pieces connect together. And I think one advantage of that, when you mentioned pointlessness, Scott, is it helps us to understand our place in the story. Right? If I understand where the story started and where it's going and how it's gotten to this point, I'm much more likely to understand what my role in the story is. So they're both very helpful. Can you think of some examples of systematic theology in the New Testament? Are there places where systematic theology shows up? In the New Testament. Romans 1 to 8. Good. Yeah. We've seen some of them already, even today. How about biblical theology? Book of Acts. Give me an example. Do you mean the whole book, or do you mean inside the book of Acts? Well, both really, but um, there is an unfolding of the story that's going on there. But then um, Paul is using biblical theology and um, Kind of like as far as where maybe Acts 13, uh, where he's speaking to the Jews, he's using the storyline of redemption. But then when he is addressing uh, Mars Hill, he uses creation. He begins with that, mm -hmm. with the unknown God. So yep. he's taking different um, mm -hmm. uh, steps there. Yeah. favorite Bible passage, if I'm allowed to have a favorite. <laughs> so what would be the difference between that and, and systematic? If he goes through the scriptures, giving a biblical theology of himself, is that not systematic theology? Well, when he, I mean, it, it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, you know, he explained to them how all these things pointed to him. So he's... Um, For a systematic going through those elements. Yes. 
Yeah, yes, the systematic's going to grow out of it, right? Because he's going he's to talk about um, Noah, but we don't have a systematic theology of Noah. Noah's a story, the person, but Noah points us to Jesus. Abraham, Isaac point us to Jesus in some sense, and so those stories help us to understand who Jesus is, and then the systematic can kind of grow out of that too. Yeah. In some ways, Jeff's question is, is was he not doing Christology? Uh, which is a systematic theology right. yeah. category. Yeah. Today, the, the class is on Christology, but he did it in a biblical theology uh, approach to how he got to his systematic theology conclusions. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a good point. I think, I think systematic theology governs every one of our thinking as we look at Scripture. I don't think there's any way to get away from it. We can say we don't, but systematic theology whether we consider it to be formalized in our minds or not, that's what governs how we view every single passage of Scripture. Hopefully the two of them are, are work together. Yeah, yeah and sure, refine absolutely. each other along the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Um, I'll just mention this before I share a few more resources. I want to tie this back to um, what Kevin said already this morning. When you think of how our culture is different now than it was in years past, one of the things is biblical illiteracy. You used to be able to assume a certain level of biblical knowledge. You used to be able to say, you know, you could, you could talk about Abraham or Noah or David, and people knew who you were talking about, or they at least had a baseline understanding. That's just not the case anymore for a lot of people. And I think that's one of the places where biblical theology can be helpful is that someone who's absolutely unfamiliar with Scripture is probably more likely to listen to the story of the Bible than to hear you teach them about a particular doctrine. They might be more receptive to the story than to the category. So I mentioned that in terms of discipleship, when we're looking for new disciples, however far back we want to call it discipleship, evangelism and discipleship, that this is probably really a great tool for us to be using as we're training disciples. Um, with that in mind, let me mention a few, another kind of set of resources. This book, by this name, um, is one that we've used in our church a lot for discipleship. And it is retelling the story of Scripture. And this particular book assumes nothing. It assumes no biblical knowledge. It just starts at square one. And it just tells the story. And the goal of it is to communicate the gospel, the absolute heart of the biblical message, in that story form, and drawing the conclusions from the story. Um, I chose this particular one rather than one that started with some knowledge of Scripture because my goal was we want to reach unchurched people. The reality is who we connected with and who actually found this to be really helpful was people from some mainline churches or churches that um, just weren't teaching the gospel. And so 
we would go through groups of studying this, and I, every week when we came together to work through it, there were these aha moments where people were going, oh, I always heard that. I never understood. And it was like the pieces started falling in place, and it, now I understand the whole big story. So the, um, some of you, if you've been around the church for many years, does anyone remember the old um, video called Etau? Oh, yeah. Okay. So what was going on there in, in New Guinea, those tribal settings starting from scratch and just telling the story of Scripture, the people who were involved with that are the people who put out this book and other materials. And they basically said this was effective in this pagan setting that, where people had never heard the gospel. And our world here in America is becoming a whole lot more like that too. What if we put together resources that did the same thing for people to use here? And so that's what that flows out of. And so let me mention just a few others. Um, this was actually the first one. is called The Stranger on the Road to Emmaus. So it goes back to Luke 24. This one does assume a certain level of Judeo-Christian background. There's another one, if you have interaction with Muslim people, all that the prophets have spoken is geared toward a Muslim audience. They're all essentially the same content. They're telling the biblical story, but targeted slightly differently. Um, they also have some shorter ones, like what is what are Christmas and Easter all about, and the story that matters that are at a very much more simple level, and one for children called The Lamb. Um, that's got lots of illustrations and whatnot, but it just focuses in on the story of the sacrifice of the lamb and how that points to Jesus' death in our place. The last thing I'll mention that I have from them is this book called Field Notes, and this is a book that I want all of you to take with you today. Um, my friend that works at Goodseed sent me these so that you can just take them. And this is just stories, basically. Um, each one is maybe just a couple pages, of people who had that experience of the lights coming on and of understanding the gospel as they encountered the story in that way. Okay, so please take one of these with you. If you're here with other people and you think they would want one too, go ahead and take them. There's a lot here. And then this is the brochure that gives their a little more information about their resources. So I started with <coughs> systematic ones because those are important too. I'm finishing with biblical ones that might be a little less familiar to you. But all of those resources are helpful depending on, again, your situation and what you're looking for. Um, let me wrap up by asking you, what's your one takeaway thought from our time together? Or what's your one question that's in your mind that you are maybe pushed to explore further? Anybody have any thoughts on that? I'm wrestling with this, with, with this question here as far as, as reaching unbelievers. Because I was thinking the opposite of what you said, and then it kind of changed when, when you were saying the theology is, is more helpful for reaching people that don't have um, a Judeo-Christian background, which is, you know, what we're from, that's the majority. Um, I was thinking that systematic theology would be better because you're, you're dealing then with an area and in a realm where, you know, everybody whether they realize it or not, I think thinks systematically, 
you know, theologically, as far as where did I come from, you know, what's wrong with me or what's wrong with the world and how's it all going to end, and dealing with those questions <coughs> thematically and systematically, you can meet people almost where they're at without saying, this is what the Bible says, this is the story of the Bible, which, you know, my experience is there's already people that are, you know, as soon as you say, well, this is what God says, or this is what the Bible says, you know, they're already blocking you out. Mm -hmm. But it's also incomplete because, um, you know, the, the, the two have, have to work together. There has to be a, a tie-in from this is the purpose, but this is also the story behind it, and this is what God said, and this is where we can derive truth from. And so just the importance of really, you know, I, I, I kind of look at both of those as one is from the outside looking in, and one is from the inside looking out, and being able to really work those two together in order to really meet people where their minds are at, and you know, deal with things the way that, that Jesus dealt with Paul dealt with, you know, uh, someone mentioned Mars Hill and that whole situation, but Jesus getting up and, and doing biblical theology in the temple. You know, when I think of Luke, I think it's four when he quotes Isaiah. Basically says, this is me. And that's, you know, helpful. Yeah. Yep, and it's best if, if those things can be done in a relationship where you're getting to know someone and maybe that can help you with which way is the better approach. Good thoughts. Others? A takeaway thought? Or a question that you have that you want to pursue further? We didn't really talk about it a lot, but one thing that um, I'm wrestling through right now is um, developing an understanding of a holistic approach to gospel discipleship. Um, and what, what I mean by that is that when I was raised in the church, a lot of the churches I was involved in was, were heavy on the moral sides of discipleship, of the spiritual disciplines, that you need to do this, you need to memorize scripture, you need to have your uh, daily quiet time, and um, those are all essential elements that we need to work towards, but um, gospel and discipleship really need to, are, are a matter of the heart, and we need to start there, and that, the heart and the hands mentality need to be heavily involved. I think this helps me um, just been rethinking through what we would want all of the disciples in our church to be exposed to. And um, I just think that it helps refine um, there, needs, there needs to be some biblical, in uh, that way, kind of four phases. But some of it is the first phase of gospel centrality, which I put my fourth, biblical theology. And there's a second area of systematic theology. So probably a good blend of both of those in our kind of our, our basic opening salvo that we would hope to expose all of our, our believers to. Good. I think for me, the, the big takeaway for me was this idea that um, all of those different categories that may be in our mind, whether it's ethics, politics, <laughs> things like that, that um, Jesus is calling us to be a disciple of his in all of those areas in our lives, and not just this Yeah, it's an integrated view. We live in a universe, not a multiverse. Because it was all created by one God. And it's all accountable to him. It all answers to him. It's all from him, through him, and to him. Good. 
Which side are there people producing resources to get the gospel across to people who aren't like what some of us grew up with and they're telling stories and trying to approach it differently because we're not being real effective in evangelism these days. Okay. Any others? This is unrelated to, I think, everything we talked about, but um, I've just been, the last few weeks, really wrestling about the, just the importance of intentionality with discipleship. Um, you know, I, I think just in general, churches uh, feel really comfortable with an inward focus and just how we need to go back to, once again, you know, Jesus and how he modeled disciple-making and the process of discipleship. If we want to call people into discipleship, we have to be intentional to create those relationships and create those opportunities and those venues for discipleship. And I think that's another area where, at least in, in my realm around that, we've not done the greatest job of yeah. creating those opportunities and being intentional about it. Yeah. Well, and let me tag onto that and just mention the, the resources that I highlighted at the end. Um, the, the company that does that also does seminars on how to use those and how to do those relationally. Um, our church is going to be hosting one, hopefully in October. So um, the guy that wrote this book, John Cross, and a friend of mine, Scott Humphreys, are going to be coming to do that together. So we'll get that information out if you're interested. It should be October. Let me... Um, Another resource, um, we've started using the Gospel Project from Lifeway sure. in our Sunday school. Yep. And it's um, biblical theology three years from Genesis to Revelation, telling the, the big story. But every chapter, there's 99 essential doctrines that you learn along the way, and they are, that's systematic theology categories working together. Yep. And each lesson <coughs> dumps into a missional application. Uh -huh. So, you know, it's not just uh, systematic or biblical, but also missional, yep. and trying to do theology in all three of those streams. Let me finish with prayer, and let me, before I do that, just say thank you for participating. It was a good discussion. I appreciate you jumping in and um, sharpening each other in that way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time together. I pray that uh, what you want us to remember and to walk away with would be cemented into our minds so that we can continue to wrestle with these things. We thank you that you are a God who has spoken and a God who has acted. That we have your word that we can read, we can study, and never finish doing that. Um, we have so much to learn, so much to explore. I pray that you help us, even as we have a desire to be disciple makers, to remember that it's not that we um, become a completed disciple and then we turn around and disciple others, but we ourselves are always disciples in the process. We are learning and growing. And so would you cause us to continue to grow, sharpen our thinking, um, help us to understand more and more the truth of the gospel and what it means as we live our lives as a disciple of Jesus. And um, we thank you for the day and for the food that you provided for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Make sure you uh, take one of those books as you go.